Hey, Chern, has there been a Brexit deal? You know what? I think there has been. And shall we talk about it? I think we darn well should. Well then, it is Sunday the 27th of December 2020. And this is Ballads Talk About. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. I'm joined, as always, from the other side of the globe by my co-host Churn. Hey Sam, good to talk to you as always. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I saw this week that David Frosty the Snowman brought us a Brexit deal, so I think it's high time we talk about it, as we said. Uh, did you have a nice day over Christmas? Yeah, I did have a nice day over Christmas. A bit different compared to previous years, considering the person's restrictions here and there. But it's a nice time to relax and, frankly, just eat a lot of food. It certainly is. It certainly was a lot smaller for everyone this year, I think. But uh, I don't think it took away too much from the day, hopefully. Well, it's a good end to 2020, isn't it? I mean, finally, this year, as you know, as we talked about last week, it's finally ending. And one of the final things that have come through at the end of this year is the fact that, that after four and a half years, there has been a Brexit deal. The white smoke has appeared over Brussels and a UK-EU trade agreement was unveiled on Christmas Eve. How very festive indeed for politicals like both of us. Across this podcast and the next, we'll be discussing, well, a Brexit carol, the Brexit past, a Brexit present and a Brexit future. Focusing today on the past, how do we get to this deal and what the politics looks like at this current moment. But first, Sam, as our US correspondent or Biden cabinet confirmation correspondent, what has happened in the week before Christmas? <laughs> I feel like we should get a um, Biden cabinet jingle so that these can be uh, introduced because they seem to be a frequent occurrence. This week, we only really got one significant cabinet pick, which was Biden's pick for education secretary, which is Miguel Cardona, who is uh, a Latino who was actually championed by the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, which is interesting because that is a representation point that we both identified as something that we thought the Biden campaign would be trying to, to tick off a little bit more. And he's the former Connecticut education commissioner, which fulfills Biden's pledge to appoint an educator into this position. He was noted as someone who understands the school system, particularly in the pandemic. Um, he's a former educator himself, as I said, and represents an important demographic. And obviously, anyway, is up after Betsy DeVos's role as education secretary. So it can, things can only get better. But I thought actually what the biggest news was this week in terms of the Biden cabinet was actually the absence of news about some notable picks, including the Attorney General and Commerce Secretary, to name a few. So I'm wondering this week what the holdup is and why Biden is waiting to announce these picks, if indeed he's made these picks at all. One theory I'm going to throw out to you before I ask for your thoughts on it is do you think that Biden is maybe waiting to see what's going to happen in Georgia? Obviously, these picks require Senate confirmation and the runoffs in Georgia will determine the balance of power in the Senate. So if you were looking like you were going to win both of those seats, potentially you could pick someone who wouldn't require Republican votes to be confirmed. However, 
if you lose both of those seats, you've got to pick some people who can get through a Republican-controlled Senate. I don't know if this is what is going on, but it seems a bit strange that particularly a role like Attorney General, where for quite some time we've had some leading contenders for it, we've not seen anything emerge. What do you think? First of all, before I move on to the lack of positions of the Attorney General and the Commerce Secretary, which I think it's a very interesting point you raised, I just want to make a comment on the appointment of Miguel Cordana as Education Secretary. I did read somewhere that one reason he kind of emerged as a late field pick for Education Secretary. And the one reason why I heard that he's kind of left, he, he won the ultimate prize in the end, is that he's not affiliated with one of the teaching unions in the United States. So that is the American Federation of Teachers or the bigger National Education Association. And because he's an administrator and a former teacher, it, it, it did pick that public educator box. But also, by picking one or the other, Biden could not have been accused of favoritism among the two big education unions. And let's be frank, after Betsy divorces reign as education secretary, the whole system might need a lot of cuddling and making them feel much more harmonious together. Mm-hmm. So it is quite a big job ahead for him. Um, I have to be honest, this is a surprising theory about whether the Georgia runoffs is playing into Biden's thinking. I have to say that I'm a bit surprised like you, but particularly why Attorney General has been left to so late. And the, the one thing, though, I would qualify a statement is that the best case scenario, if Warnock and Ossoff wins, and let's be honest, it's not a done deal, is it? Far um, from it. Far from it. And... It's something in which, even in 50-50, I'm not sure you can get a Democrat to line up behind a single nominee if it's slightly more of the liberal wing. Mm-hmm. Because, as you have seen, Kirsten Sinema has very often been willing to break ranks with her party in the event of um, in the event that she might not like it. And Joe Manchin, as well, is running for re-election the next time Biden, well, or the next Democratic nominee, if it's not Biden, is running for president again. So I wonder if he might be tempted to do so, but it could be someone like Doug Jones, for example, rather than possibly Merrick Gartland, who is the other familiar candidate, if the Republicans hold on to both the Senate seats. I don't think that it will be too far liberal pick than that theory would suggest because of the fact that even if you have 50, there are still too many Democrats from very red states like John Tester as well, who might not come behind a liberal nominee or has short tendencies to break with the Democratic Party more so than the Republicans. So do you think the holdup is genuinely that they have not landed on a decision about who the Attorney General is going to be? I think there are many competing groups. I do wonder when Lloyd Austin's appointment as Defence Secretary, if you remember earlier on, um, as the first Black uh, Defence Secretary, whether that was indicated that a white person will be appointed Attorney General, mm-hmm. uh, which sort of sit the names of Doug Jones and Merrick Garland appointed. I do think, though, if I was Joe Biden, that don't forget that if you get Merrick Garland, you, it opens up the seat on the judiciary, which I doubt Mitch McConnell is, you know, in a rush to fill that position, given mm-hmm. his attitude during the, during the Obama administration. So I think that... It, Doug Jones, to me, seems like a relatively smooth confirmation, which is clearly what Biden has gone for. And I think I would just like to point out that if you want to wait for the results of Georgia runoff, why are you waiting? Why have you appointed so many people into cabinet positions if you were so concerned about the Georgia runoffs? You could wait till after. This is true. 
And and finally, on Biden cabinet, do you think we're still expecting any representation from the Republican Party? Well, traditionally, if you look at the two posts that the Republicans got in previous administrations, certainly the Obama administration, they got transport secretary. But we both know that that's no longer the case because Pete Buttigieg would be it. I do think that the logic dictates to me that the, the position which the Republicans are most likely to take would be the Commerce Secretary. There have been names such as Meg Whitman, as we talked about in the podcast previously, and I still stick by it. But I think he might appoint one, just to, to reach across the aisle as such. What do you think? Yeah, I think you might be right. And a lot of sources I've read seem to be pointing in that direction. I think if any position's going to go to the GOP, it's probably that one. Uh, but again, I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens with the last few appointments as they come out in the next week or two. But for now, that's that's all I've got on the US cabinet this week. What news have you been following this week, Chern? So I'm looking at news closer to home, actually, where I am. Last week, as you remember, we talked about Australia's cabinet reshuffle, mainly done for politics, minimalist in scale because of the pandemic. Well, the country to its north, Indonesia, just reshuffled its cabinet this week. What I think is interesting is that it took a very different approach. President Joko Widodo is term limited. He won his last re-election last year. So clearly, I think he has decided that this is a reshuffle to do with not with political problems, but with policy problems. Um, The chief among which is the fact that he has replaced several ministers in crucial COVID-related portfolios, which is something Scott Morrison last week did not do. The big one is that there's a new health minister, Nudi Gyoandi Sadikin, who I probably misbutchered the pronunciation, has been appointed the health minister. He had previously led the National Economic Recovery Task Force, and he replaces quite a controversial health minister who famously claimed early on the pandemic that flu is much more dangerous than COVID-19 as he has a higher mortality rate and recommended people not to wear masks. This seems very familiar to me. The other big news is the appointment of two other big news is the fact that Mohammed Lafti, the current ambassador to the United States, has been appointed trade minister and has replaced, he's an independent. And something in Indonesia to work out is that its cabinet, a bit like the US, has to make sure people who are purely um, independent and people who are part, more party appointees so the trade minister, the new Mohammed Lafti, he's a non-partisan appointee, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. He was previously served as trade minister for a short period in 2014 and was previously minister for investment in the earlier, in 2005. So clearly this is some, uh, a portfolio area which he has a lot of knowledge from. But the other big news I would say is the appointment of San, Sandagi Yuno, who is the former Jakarta vice governor, who ran as the number two to the person that Joko Widodo defeated in 2019. He has been appointed tourism and creative economy minister. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have gotten to a situation whereby Prabowo Subianto, who ran as President Jokowi's main opponent in 2014 and 2019, is the current defense minister, and his 2019 running mate is now the tourism minister. This kind of thing kind of reminds me, if you don't mind me saying, of Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals, or more recently, Barack Obama nominating Hillary Clinton to be Secretary of State. And it was often thought that that was a successful partnership, despite what I certainly remember was a very acrimonious partnership. 
what do you think managed to get that chemistry going, having had fought quite a vicious battle just a few months before? Well, I would imagine a lot of it comes from good intentions from the person who is actually in, who actually won the battle of the rivals. For example, in the case of Obama and Clinton, so if Obama actually has good intentions in cooperating and opening the table rather than it just being political opportunism to try and present an illusion that the two sides of the party are working together. I don't know that much about the Indonesian case. If the president is actually wanting to work with the opposition rather than just maintain an illusion of working with them, then I think this could work quite well. And as you said, if they're term limited, then they don't particularly have any political reasons to do this to try and win re-election. So if they're generally trying to solve the pandemic and are generally willing to cooperate, then I think this could work quite well. That's very interesting. I do think that good intentions is one thing, but I would also like to point out that um, President Joko Widodo's PDIP party only controls 20% of the seats in the Indonesian parliament. And Prabowo Subaranto's Garindra party is the second largest party within that. Sorry, they're the third largest group, actually. Um, this suggested to me that in order to get any legislation through, the reality is that you have to bring him on side. And in order to get anything done, as he wants to be seen as if he wants to see him as a reformist president, they have to be involved as well. And there's just no other way, really, without Gurindra's help. So, yes, I think although good intentions is one thing, I think the reality is his party had to be involved, really, to build that coalition to get legislation through. I find it interesting as well that this is another example of main opposition and rivals being placed in the foreign affairs and defence realm, which I often find quite mm. interesting. The same thing tends to happen in, in Germany, particularly happened in the case of Hillary Clinton with Obama, and now this um, Ursula von der Leyen as well served as German defence minister when she was seen as a potential rival to Angela Merkel. So I find that interesting that that is where people get shunted to. And I think two things as well is that in Germany as well, the foreign minister since 2005 has gone to the Social Democrat mm -hmm. or the FDP, uh, the junior coalition party in Merkel. And don't forget, Barack Obama himself, and I'm going to bring this up again, Robert, he kept Robert Gates as defense secretary very early on in his tenure, who was Bush's defense secretary, actually. And he also, don't forget, appointed Chuck Hagel as um, defense secretary later on in his tenure mm -hmm. as well. So yes... I think appointing rivals definitely seems to be in a foreign affairs realm. I think it's because, particularly among left-leaning political parties, being seen to have a law and order message works to their advantage. That's what I personally feel. Yeah. We will be right back. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. And now we're on to our main discussion of this week, which is the ever-prevalent issue of Brexit. So as we said, on Christmas Eve, 1,645 days since the 2016 EU referendum, the EU and UK announced that they had finally settled on a trade agreement. The issue that has plagued the Conservative Party for decades seems to be finally, at least for now, settled, with the unveiling of a 1,500-page trade agreement and a pledge from Labour to vote for it. So today we're going to be talking about that same referendum, the build-up to it and the consequences of it in the short term for the UK political system. 
So I think it's probably worth starting with the question, how did we get to this point? The 2016 referendum was sort of the beginning of this tale. It wasn't really the beginning of the problems with the UK and the EU, I think that's fair to say. I don't want this to become a history lesson, because a lot of this is regurgitated quite frequently, particularly in the last four and a half years. But what are the flashpoints you can identify, Churn, from the off of being, if not when vote leave became inevitable, but when this result of the referendum and the process of leaving the, the European Union became more likely? First of all, can I just say, this is our 12th podcast we've done, and we're actually talking about Brexit for the first time in a feature length, really. I think considering we both studied in the UK, that deserves a medal, frankly, given we've avoided the B word for 12 ep- it's, episodes. It's remarkable, really. It is so remarkable. In fact, so remarkable, considering the fact we both did a half module in our final year regarding Brexit and its relationship, Britain's relationship with the EU. But more to more substantive methods. I think as you rightly identified, this is a long process. I think Britain from the start was never a big Europhilic country, unlike many of its continental Europe. It still retained much more of an empire pride, really, I would say. I think the roots of this current vote leave can be traced back to the fall of Margaret Thatcher, actually, because the very brutal manner of her dismissal, which, okay, had a lot to do with polling and other issues, but Europe was one of the issues as well. That very famous phrase she uttered in 1989, no, 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 in describing what was then the formation of the European Council, played a big part of it. And I think Eurosceptics are very wrapped up with very much the manner of her dismissal, I would feel, and kept, particularly those on the right, kept the burning cause of it to carry on Mrs. Thatcher's cause of Euroscepticism, which is quite funny, given that she campaigned in 1975 to join the European, what was then known as the European Economic Community. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that I think it was a decision by the Blair government in 2004, which allowed basically when the EU expanded to Europe, Eastern European countries like Romania, for example, that there was no immigration controls put on when they were so it basically allowed free movement of people immediately to come into the UK. And the UK, as we both know throughout, is seen as a very attractive country. There are many pull factors from many less developed countries to come in. And I feel like 2004 then was when immigration as a salience issue really started building this country, perfectly amplified by a very simple but very effective message by Nigel Farage and Vote Leave of taking back control. And that was specifically in reference to the borders, I would feel. They were targeting this issue because immigration was such a salient issue. So those are the two events in my mind I will identify with. Can you think of anything else, Sam? Well, I think one of the key flashpoints was in the middle of Cameron's first government when he pledged that he was going to put a European referendum in the manifesto. That really kicked everything off because I don't think at that point even in the run-up to the 2015 election when they reconfirmed that pledge, that they ever really expected to have a majority government. So Cameron thought this was something that he was only really going to have to offer in the event of a treaty change, because that was the original Conservative policy. I think a referendum emerged and became a release valve for pretty much every political grievance that anybody held for the last 
20, 30 years. I'd just like to quickly take you up on that point. Why did it become Brexit as an issue, given that 12 months before, you could have taken it out at the Conservative Party, really, at the general election. Why Brexit and not the governing Conservative Party? That is an excellent question, and one that I don't have a particularly succinct answer to. The 2015 election was very bizarre in so many ways, because it confounded pretty much every poll in the run-up which had Labour and the Conservatives neck and neck. And I think it was really just a symptom of the first-past-the-post system, in which you only really need to outperform the other party marginally in 50, 60 seats, and you can quite easily get a majority even when the election as a whole seems reasonably close. One more question on the 2015 election, and I know this is a discussion on Brexit, but 2015 was, of course, the pivotal moment, having been promised in the lead-up to it and therefore had to be delivered. Is I know this is a counterfactual, but do you think the Tories would have won a majority in the 2015 election if they didn't offer the Brexit referendum? I'm not sure. I think they probably would have, because I don't know how many people voted Conservative rather than voting for the UK Independence Party on that one issue. I'm, I'd love to see the data on that, but I'm not particularly convinced that it was that issue that swung the election, because let's not forget, back in 2015, the European issue, when when people were polled in terms of what what issues were forefront in their mind, I think barely even cracked the top 10. It wasn't until the build-up to the EU referendum that it skyrocketed to first and basically maintained its position as first for a majority of the 2015 to 2019 political period. Certainly, I think that the Conservatives did feel that that was the case, and I think David Cameron certainly felt that that was the case, that this was an issue that they had to get in the forefront of their manifesto because of the pressure from UKIP. But I'm not particularly convinced that it was that issue that won them the election. Interesting, because I actually feel that it could have made a difference, actually, because Cameron's majority was only 330, which is four more. And logic would dictate to me that it's such a small majority. I think that this could have made a sway. Because if you look at some of the seats the Tories gained in 2015, they are also quite lead. Okay, they're not to the same extent as it was in 2019, but these were areas that were later associated with voting leave. A place like Vela Cluid in Wales, for example, that was a surprise gain mm-hmm. that brought the Tories onto the majority path. So I think without the referendum pledge, we could have ended up, I think, quite similar to the exit poll released on the 2015 election, which was the Tories maybe falling one or two seats short. Because I do agree that the main thing about, the main story of the 2015 election was the Tories taking all those seats in the southwest of England, really. But the fact mm-hmm. that they held Labour to a score draw in the rest of England, I and particularly in the north, where they actually increased the majority in many marginal seats, I do wonder whether the offer of a referendum gave people the knowledge that, okay, I'll vote for the Tories and then take my frustration out at what is both an issue in which it was amplified by both the Labour and the Conservative government. Because don't forget, that was only five years into a Conservative government. They knew Most people in that time knew more of the Labour government at that period. And so therefore, they voted Tory in the knowledge that within a year or two, they could... I wouldn't say revenge is too strong a word, but it could take the frustrations out at a system as the release files we identified earlier being the Brexit referendum. Yeah, that's very interesting. So do you think the 2015 election is 
where this all began in terms of really this being a very serious prospect of 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 leave occurring it was hard to say of a single event i mean i identified the two but i think the I think we can't discount actually events that happen in Europe as contributing to vote leave. One of them being the Eurozone crisis. I do think that given how much airtime that was given and the fact that during, don't forget, during the 2014 European Parliament elections, a lot of air with was taken up by the fact that we potentially had to bail out Greece. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly those working class communities who turned out to be that X factor um, or those seen as traditionally part of the Labour base that actually voted Brexit. I do wonder whether the fact that we potentially had to bail out Greece, even though Cameron virtually said no, that was a tipping factor. And of course, we can't underestimate the migrant crisis. The I was just about to say that the two that. crises basically bled into each other and became a cocktail of disillusionment. Exactly. And don't forget, as I mentioned earlier, this was amplified by immigration's really salient issue, thanks to the decision the Blair government took in 2004. So this just added more fuel onto the fire and probably what tipped over the line. Don't forget, this is only 52-48. It was actually quite a narrow margin, actually. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder in the counterfactual without those, what would actually happen? Britain might have probably voted to remain, really. Yeah, well, the question we had written down was, when did the vote to leave become inevitable? And I was trying to think of my answer to this question. And my honest answer to the question really is, I don't think it ever really did, at least not in my mind, because it, it even well into the referendum results night, I was shocked that Leave won. I thought it might be close, but I didn't necessarily think it was going to swing that way. So at least for me, it felt like it never really became inevitable. Fair enough. And we talked a lot about the period preceding it. Shall we talk about what happened once vote Leave happened? Yeah. I think we should. I think we should. I put a subtitle down here of 2016 to 2019, the never ending story, which certainly it felt like Brexit was going to go on ad infinitum since the referendum. What what do you think made this period so turbulent and almost like a living nightmare for both sides? Honestly, it was going to be that the moment Theresa May lost a majority in 2017. I think that if she ran with the same parliament, she might have been able to thread the needle. But mm-hmm. because she lost the majority and therefore all authority in the Conservative Party, both wings, it was, it, was a, it was a feast on on both sides. Given they knew she was weak, they, the Remains thought they could persuade her to become a more uh, Remain sort of deal, which therefore meant they didn't vote for her deal and so did the Leavers. I think Brexit only really, really happened when the Conservatives won back their majority so emphatically in 2019. And Boris Johnson was infused with authority, basically meant that one side had to shut up, basically. That's why I feel it's a never-ending story. What about you? I think that's a really good point, because the 2017 election really did throw everything up in the air, because it was the result that Theresa May was not expecting and it was a result which just made Parliament an absolute nightmare and made it look like every single position on the Brexit issue could navigate their way some way to a win, whether it be remaining or leaving without even a withdrawal agreement. Every single position on that spectrum believed that they had a path to victory from that moment on, which made Parliament so problematic. 
However, I do think that even without the 2017 election, with the very narrow majority that Theresa May inherited from David Cameron, which I think at that point had dwindled a little bit. Richmond but, Park, yeah. Jack Goldsmith's resignation. Jack Goldsmith had resigned and Sarah Olney had won that seat back. So the, the yeah. majority had even got smaller since David Cameron won it in 2015. Even with that, there would have been problems because there were certain sides who were never going to support a, a certain position on on Brexit and it wasn't until it had been very specifically set out by the Johnson government put into a manifesto explicitly and then voted on for that that we really saw movement on this issue and I wonder that even without Theresa May losing the majority we would have seen the different sides positioning. I don't think we would have seen the Remain side positioning as much personally because the 2017 election made a Remain position, or at least a second referendum position in Parliament viable, because you could see a way to get that passed. But certainly, I think the harder Brexit position would have come up against the position that was set out by Theresa May and her government. I think there would have been some conflict there, because that wing of the Conservative Party felt like they owned the referendum and were not being given the chance to act upon it and the Theresa May government was trying if in vain to create something that could potentially be palatable to the Labour Party but history will tell us that that never happened but at the time I think that's what the intention was. I get your point that I think with a majority as narrow as it was in 15 I think it was 12 and then as we discussed later dwindled it would have meant that she would have been in virtually the same position regardless of whether she actually called the 17 elections. I take that point. I'm wondering, and this is a supplementary question on the 2017 election before we move on, do you think that was a Brexit election? Was the 2017 election about Brexit? No, this is my simple answer. Was it meant to be? I think she wanted it to. There were evidence that it was beginning to happen because the Tories took seats like Mansfield and North East Derbyshire in 2017. So it was the remnants of it, but it was too early. And I think a better position would have been if she ran into parliamentary difficulties later on and then went to the polls, a bit like what Johnson did. Because then for all the leavers who say, why is parliament trying to frustrate it? The only reason why is I have to grant the Conservatives majority. That's how you get it. So Mm -hmm. 2017, I think, was supposed to be but as we both know, some, the, the, the problem with calling a one-issue election is that it could very much run away with not being a one-issue election. And I think the 2017 election is a prime candidate to do so. That's my feeling. What do you think? Yeah, I 100% agree. Because it's very interesting when I look back to think, what was Labour's position on Brexit in 2017? And I'm not exactly sure that I could tell you what it was. which. It says everything, I think, because it never really came up. That campaign was talking about pretty much everything else. Labour and the Conservatives broadly agreed that they wanted to at least pass some kind of withdrawal agreement and then negotiate some kind of trade agreement and then we would go from there. But there was not really any clarity on that. And that says everything because the campaign ended up talking about public services, ended up talking about the economy, ended up talking about 
levels of taxation. Exactly. And it really ran away with it. And I think your point on it being too early for it to be a Brexit election is a really effective one, because as you said, there had been no parliamentary difficulty with Brexit at all. I don't think there'd been a single vote on it other than to trigger Article 50, which sailed through. I think it only had about 50 votes against, uh, plus the SNP. So that was not a problem. And it looked like if you just looked at the raw parliamentary arithmetic, you were going to manage in some way to get through some kind of reasonable withdrawal agreement. So the public, I don't think, really bought Theresa May's argument that she needed this majority. One final thing I just realised you said is that Labour had, you couldn't work out what Labour's position in 2017 for Brexit, what Brexit was. Could you work out what it was in 2019? Yes, but it takes a lot of explanation. I don't think you could get it in a single tweet. And what is the thing that unites about Brexit is that short slogans have been the most effective at Brexit. Take back control was very effective, you could argue. Then it was get Brexit done. I mean, it happens to be three words, but I think with Brexit as an issue, the shorter, the more concise it's better. And I think this is where Labour really struggled, really, don't mm-hmm. you think? Yeah, particularly in 2019 election. I think in the 2017 election, they were quite fortunate that they never had to really talk about it because they managed to take over the narrative with pretty much everything else. But 2019, that was definitely a problem, which I think brings us nicely on to sort of the big question when we're talking about Brexit this week and Brexit passed, which is, what was the impact of the period 2016 to 2019 and the referendum more generally on the UK party system? Big question, I know, but some headline takeaways. I think it solidified certainly a two-party system because it became a binary choice, isn't it? You either had this way, you either vote Conservative against this form of Brexit, or you either vote Labour and get that sort of Brexit. I think Brexit helped solidify the two-party process. That's the first thing. I think as well is that it showed to me how wide the coalitions within each party are. Most evidently in the Conservatives, you had Damon Green on one hand to Jacob Rees-Mogg on the other. And even to a lesser extent, Labour as well, because you had people like Graham Stinger who voted for the deal to, you know, the arch people vote campaigners such as West Street. I'm just giving two names, for mm-hmm. example. I think it showed you that the party system was one in which had very wide coalitions that were not suited for Brexit. And there came a point in which I wondered, particularly the formation of the Tigger group, the independent group for change. Gosh, I had to remember what that name was called all those years ago. Um, <laughs> whether that that was the start of this splitting up of the parties according to more social cleavage, which is part of more of a Brexit cleavage. I did think that was one point. But the, the wider question I had is that we had these parties with these broad coalitions. One thing that is striking to me is that one of the features of the 17 to 19 parliament was the meaningful vote. And we can't really talk about a Brexit podcast without the meaningful vote, can we? And I remember one of them, the customs union vote, I think it was eight votes from passing or something like that. It might have been 260 something, 272. Second referendum was not that far behind. How do we get from a position like that to the form of Brexit that's now on the table? That is the real question about this Brexit period, because we seem to, as we said at the start, 
throughout this period oscillate between pretty much every single vision of Brexit from no Brexit at all to leave immediately without a withdrawal agreement. They all seem to be on the table for this period. And as you said, we, we got to that period with the indicative votes where it very much felt like uh, people's vote, second referendum, confirmatory vote, whatever you want to call it, seemed like it was within grasp of the People's Vote campaign. It certainly felt like there was momentum behind it and that eventually we were going to end up there some way or another. And then it all suddenly collapsed, as you said, and we've ended up with with this Brexit deal that was announced this week, which I think is fair to describe as on the harder side of things in terms of the Brexit spectrum. The one thing that definitely affected that was the 2019 election result because it meant that Johnson's government had a majority that was comfortable enough to even navigate their way around potential problems within the Conservative Party, not just in the wider Parliament, but they managed to, even if there was going to be any Conservative rebels left, there would be enough votes to ignore them. And I think the other thing that happened is the soft Brexit side, if you will, the people, the People's Vote campaign people as well as the single market 2.0 people, never really coalesced around what they actually wanted and how they were going to get it. Because quite famously, when the SNP and Liberal Democrats came together to say they were going to support an election, the People's Vote campaign in the Labour Party were appalled at this decision because they said, we are so close and you are just handing an election to Boris Johnson that we're probably going to lose. Whereas we would probably eventually get to the votes in Parliament because you had people like the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, all but coming out and saying that they were going to eventually support a second referendum. And it felt like there was momentum behind that. And I think if these groups had have aligned around single market alignment or a customs union very early on, you probably would have got it. Because I think the Theresa May government in particular would have probably coalesced on that eventually because there was definitely the votes in Parliament for that. But as I said, everybody was just holding out for their ideal position that we never really got to the end results. I think famously in those indicative votes when the customs union fell eight votes short, I think you said, quite a few people's vote campaigners refused to vote for it because they thought it would mean that a second referendum was no longer on the table. So if they'd have voted for it, who knows where we would have ended up. And contrast this to the ERG position, which very early on coalesced around one kind of Brexit mm-hmm. and virtually held their line throughout, really, yeah. isn't it? And that, and that, I think, we don't need to talk about the Remain side, but the strength of the Leave side. They knew very early on what they wanted and doggedly, come what may, pursued that agenda, didn't it? They really did. And one question to wrap up the Brexit past section that I have about that is, did Theresa May define what we now view as the Brexit final Brexit outcome? Or was Theresa May's tenure as Prime Minister irrelevant in the Brexit narrative? And it was really only since Johnson took over that we've defined the Brexit as it exists today. I think it, it did matter, and for this one very reason, is that she chose, or her government chose, and I would love in her memoirs uh, to answer why she decided to do this, was if you remember back to her Mansion House speech, is that she very clearly said, we're going to be out of the single market, out of the customs union. Now, that did appease the right of the Tory party at the same time. 
But it also gave them, particularly after she lost the majority and when the leavers could particularly see what the parliament was going to look like, something in which they could potentially lose. And I think mm-hmm. that's very key, is that they knew that there was something to lose. And given what was potentially coming with Theresa May and what if parliament had a big say, what it could potentially end up in. And given the fact that she chose those as the red lines, essentially what the Brexiteers wanted, and therefore gave them something to lose, I think therefore she defined Brexit for what it ended up being. Johnson had the, the maths to do it, but the contours was drawn by Theresa May. That's what I would say. I think you're spot on. I was going to give a very similar answer because that Mansion House speech, I think, defined the debate because it meant that from day one, compromise with the Labour Party was going to be impossible because that contravened their key principle, which was maintaining customs union access and alignment on trade. And it meant that the ERG felt like they could get the ultimate victory, which was a complete severance. I think that in the end, we'll come to see that they fell just short of that ultimate severance that they wanted, but they got pretty much everything but that, which was completely leaving the single market jurisdiction of European law, not being in a customs union, tariff-free access. It was pretty much everything they wanted, and Theresa May was the person who at least put that on the table, I think. And I think this is one of the key things as well, because don't forget, the the big question, if you remember, when the, the withdrawal agreement came to a vote, was whether the ERG would back it. If you remember that day or so, mm-hmm. in which there was a lot of uncertainty as well, and the DUP had already walked away from it. That meant the ERG was the key to try and get it through. And I think this is where the Leave side, again, is much more pragmatic about this objective than the Remain side. Is that for however, if you remember how much Steve Baker, you could tell that this was not the destination that he wanted. He knew that this was probably their only one chance to get it right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the fact that Brexiteers swallowed it, I know they got virtually what they wanted, that did help. But the fact they swallowed it, I think it's also a big part to play in this Brexit story. Absolutely. I do have actually one more question, even though I said we were going to wrap up this this part, which is one thing we did see in this period 2016 to 19, well, particularly 2017 to 19, was the UK constitution, or whatever you want to call it, being bent to its absolute limits to the point where backbenchers are drafting and passing legislation against the will of the executive. Do you think this has had a problematic impact on UK politics? Or do you think this has actually exposed problems within the framework that need to be resolved? I think my assessment in UK democracy at this moment is a bit like America, uh, the UK constitution is a bit like the American democracy. It's a bit bruised, but intact. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to describe it. I'm not sure how you would describe it. On the question of backbench power, I think it's very interesting. I tend to take a more long-term view of backbench power, actually. I, th- I-, I wonder whether the backbench power to me, I think started, I think it was very obvious on even the start of the Cameron government, when I think it was, don't forget, it was a lot of pressure from the right of his party that forced him to offer the referendum on the first place. And the government was defeated on things like the House of Lords reform and stuff like that. So I think it's part of a longer term trend that was given steroids because of Brexit. That's what I would argue. 
even in 2005, the Labour Party from majority 66 lost a vote on the ID card system. So this has been part of a longer term trend in British politics. If we talk about backbench power, really. But it suddenly became, I will certainly concede that it came to a new level when they started to draw up their own legislation. They took control of the government's agenda, really, mm -hmm. from what I would see. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm particularly looking back to that week in December 2018 when Theresa May had pulled the first meaningful vote. And within a period of about 72 hours, we had a, vo a vote of no confidence on Theresa May a vote of no confidence in the government from Jeremy Corbyn. And we we basically had pretty much every tool in the book to try and dislodge a government that was that no longer commanded a majority of parliament. And they all failed. And from that moment on, we basically had just short of a year where Theresa May was stumbling on where it just felt inevitable that there was going to be at least some form of change in government or significant change in policy that just never really materialised. What I, what I find interesting about that week is that on one hand, we had the withdrawal agreement defeated by the biggest vote margin ever for a piece of legislation. I think it got 400 votes against. Mm -hmm. But within a few days later, the Theresa May's government had a confidence in the House. Isn't that a bit ironic, don't you think? is that the government could be defeated on the biggest piece of legislation, but still retain confidence. I think it also shows a part of it, the reason I'm explaining, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about it as well, is that primarily the Tory party is about power. And the reality is that if they lost a vote of no confidence, it will mean alternate from a non-Tory government, isn't it? Yeah, I think the big problem of this whole period was that no side really wanted to, to risk losing what their position was. So never, when it actually came to it, was not willing to do what they needed to do. For example, the ERG could have dislodged Theresa May, which they eventually mm. did, but they could have done it much earlier, but they never, they didn't. The People's Vote campaign could have formed an alternative government and they didn't because the Labour Party wouldn't let that government be led by anything other than Jeremy Corbyn. So they never did that. Those were in the dying days of, of this parliament, but still they never did it. And it was just repeated examples of, I think the tools were there to do what needed to be done, but nobody ever wanted to risk losing their ideal position. So we just ended up with six months of absolute stalemate. We don't want this but we don't want the alternative either. So we'll just vote for nothing. But why though? Because ERG knew that if they dislodged May, and we could clearly see the leadership of the Conservative Party would likely go to members who are much more Eurosceptic in nature, isn't it? So the likelihood of them appointing a prime minister was much more Eurosceptic, was very high, particularly given the rules of the Conservative Party leadership, and which was eventuated by Boris Johnson. So why did he not dislodge May? Could it be potentially, I don't want to bring this into it, but potentially they remembered the acrimony when they deposed its first female leader and trying to put in the knife to its second female leader so early on, did that potentially play into their thinking? Or why do you think in general, given the contours of the Conservative Party and the Eurosceptic membership, did it not go for the option? Yeah, I my theory on this during that period, and I still think that I may have been at least somewhat right looking back now, is that they had to feel like they were replacing the government at a time when 
compromise was not at all on the table. And I think in the immediate aftermath of that first meaningful vote, there still could have been, even if the ERG had managed to supplant Theresa May with one of their own, there was still a window in which Parliament would compromise on some sort of diluted form of their ideal Brexit. Whereas it got to the point in June when she was eventually when she eventually resigned that that was never going to happen. The, the positions were completely set in and there was not going to be any diluted form. We were either going to end up, I think, at that point with a hard Brexit, which we've ended up with, or no Brexit at all. I think those were the two options. And the, I think the ERG, it was within their interest to get to that point because otherwise they would have ended up with what they were referring to as Brino, Brexit in name only. And that was the big fear. Interesting. I think time is fast running out and I think we need to wrap up this section. And for, um, for listeners, we will be releasing another podcast talking about the Brexit deal itself and impact of Brexit looking forward on the UK party system. But a final, slightly more lighthearted question to wrap up what has been a very tumultuous and significant period in British politics is that, you know, you and I are both political junkies. Are you going to miss all those meaningful votes, the tension of the meaningful votes in all those parliamentary sittings? Are you yes or no? Of course I'm going to miss it. Of course I'm going to miss it. It was, <laughs> it was aneurysm inducing, but it was exhilarating. I have exactly the same sentiment. Brilliant. So that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next time when we'll be continuing our dive into the impact of Brexit on UK politics, looking at the deal and the potential future of the issue. And as always, bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter at at ballot underscore talk. And please leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us if you've enjoyed it. Until then, talk to you soon, Chern. Talk to you soon.